back at the ranch, we left at the cliffhanger, just to refresh your memory, which we're following these four kings that Abraham encountered way back when, and how they were the genesis of the entire world's economic, religious, and governance system until it gets destroyed all the way at the other end in the book of Revelation. Okay, remember that? That's what we're talking about. Why are we talking about that? Because I'm showing you not only the command that God has over history, but I'm showing you the plan that he has. We're in the middle of that plan. Where did those kings wind up? Well, we tracked them, and I'm not going to go through it all again, but we tracked four kings. And by the way, the four kings, I know it's hard to see, but there's the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody in here should be pretty much familiar with that. How many kingdoms are there in the statue? Exactly four. Four kings from Abraham, four kings in the statue. And I mapped for you every single king from Abraham and traced them for the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persia Empire, which is Iran and part of Iraq, but mostly Iran, especially today, the Grecian Empire, the Hellenization of the world through Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire, and then the coming iron and clay, which is partly the the resurrected Roman Empire, but also I told you and I proved to you in Daniel that he's talking about a separate kingdom which is coming alongside, which is a kingdom that the demons and the angels are trying to produce with their own seed. Remember I read you in the book of Daniel when he's talking about this, he says, and they, and they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. Well, who are the they? Who are the they? And I'm asking it rhetorically because I already know, and you already know who they are, but there are a lot of Christians who don't want to believe anything like that. So therefore, they read that scripture, and for them, it's impossible to interpret because they don't want to believe what the scripture says. Jesus himself said, during the time of this, the end, it will be just as it was in the days of... And Noah was found perfect in his... Does that generations, does that mean that he was a great guy, he didn't sin? Does that mean that everybody behind him sinned? And let's say you could possibly believe that as a Christian. That means you and I don't know how God works. I am not saved because I never sinned, correct? And I am not responsible for my father's sin or lack thereof. If my father never sinned, does that make me not a sinner? Could I ever be perfect in my generations if that's what it meant? So knowing that little bit about how God operates, we know that it can't be that Noah was sinless, and we know that it can't be that he was sinless all the way back from his father, his grandfather, so we know that we interpreted it wrong if we think that. Does that make sense? So then what does God mean if we already know because we know certain things about God through what Jesus Christ said and what his word says that that's not the correct way that God saves anybody? I don't ride on the coattails of my parents. It's a good thing. But there are generational sins and there are issues and problems that we all carry with us, but none of it is holy, is it? You can't transfer holiness from mother to father to son to daughter, can you? No. So what does it mean? He was perfect in his humanness. The line of Messiah, Jesus had to be God and he also had to be human. So if you're Satan, God said, I will not strive with man for much longer in Genesis. And he said, that the, so the, the time of his span will be 120 years. Christians have that interpreted wrong too. They think that God all of a sudden limited, you know, the 900, 1,000 year lifespan to 120. That's not what he said. That's not what he did. If you know history and you look at it, he said, and Satan knew this because he said it, it will be 120 years before the flood. You see the context of this whole thing? I will not strive with man and this evil because of the integration of 
the seed of of angels, there were no demons yet, and going through all of this. So this is where these kings come from. And then, of course, after the flood, there was Nimrod. And then the mother and son cult, which became the Virgin Mary and the, and the son. And you see the occult happening through this. And I've explained this to you many times. And I have showed you in the book of Ezekiel, where even Israel said, these women, the Israeli women, weep for Tammuz. And God cursed them in the book of Ezekiel. Because they not only went after foreign gods, but they even named them. There was a month on their calendar named Tammuz. And they said verbatim, and I read this to you in scripture, when God warned them through the prophets, they said, you know what? We know we're doing evil, worshiping the queen of heaven, and they call her the queen of heaven. And they said in God's face, oh, no, we didn't know. We know, and you know what? We're still going to do it. Our sons gather the wood, our husbands help make the fires, and we need the dough, and we bake the cakes. It's a whole family affair, and they said, we're still going to do it. Because we have provision, and we have blessing through this occult business. You think it's any different for anybody today? Why do you think there are so many religions and denominations and things that we know are false, like Buddhism and Islam? But yet we have people trying to merge all this stuff together. So here's where we are right now. So where are we in this statue? Let's take a look at it. I want you to go to Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 23. We're going to talk about some very interesting things. Remember, what we're talking about now is mostly what I want to track is one major king, the king of, anybody remember his name? The king of Elam. The king of Elam is one of those kings. Now, we, we tracked, at the very beginning of this class, we tracked the, the, uh, the uh, Elas, the king Elas, and, and who, who Abraham defeated, and he became the Grecian people and, Rome, and Alexander the Great. We tracked the others. There's one more we didn't track yet, which we will track after this, called Tidal. And he was the king of the Goyim. Now, what does Goyim mean in Hebrew or Yiddish? The nations, yeah, the Gentile nations. Remember, the Bible only talks about how many people? Three. The Jew, the Christian, and everybody else is the same thing. They're all Gentiles. It doesn't matter what religion you have. You can map into the Grecian religion and their mythology. You can map into the Roman mythology if you want. You can go to the Far East and go to China and start worshiping dragons. You can go to Taiwan and, and do what they do, or India, right? You can go anywhere you want. You're still a Gentile. So we're tracking that, how these the, these people interface with the Jews and the Christians, but mostly Israel, but what happens toward the end times? We're talking about Elam because right now Elam is the area where the kings migrated. So you see it says Elam here. It's kind of hard to see. But this is southwestern Iran, down by the Caspian Sea here. And here's Iraq, here's Saudi Arabia, here's Israel, here's Turkey. All of this plays a big part in the end times. You can see it forming right now, folks, correct? But Elam specifically is this area of Iran. By the way, the nuclear plants where they're doing all their enrichment and stuff like this is all contained within this area right here. What's the focus of probably an invasion at some point or the beginning of World War III or exacerbating World War III? The king of Elam has long legs. And he brings it right to the end. That's why we're talking about Elam. So let's see what the Bible prophecy has to say. I gave you a prophecy about some of the other kings, but this is what I want to say. Also, anybody know the city Damascus? Syria, the capital of Syria. Do you hear about that a lot in the news? Let's see what God says about, because there is a timing thing here. In prophecy, it's all about timing, isn't it? So we're going to see what God says is going to happen at the end. And I want you, after we read these things, to judge pretty much where we are. And that's what I want you to see. 
I want you to make the call that you need to know how prophecy rolls out so you can tell where you, where we are. Now, I've also been asked the question, who cares? Why does it matter? Who cares about Israel? I've been asked that question. Well, I'm not going to answer that for you because you're here. And if you and I do not understand why the Old Testament was written and who the prophets are and what Israel is and how they don't replace the church, they are the foundation of what we go grafted into, right? That's why the gospel is to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And that's why we have the oracles of God, not because the prophets gave them to you and me, gave them to Israel. And God is not finished with them yet. Be careful what people think about Israel because God said to Abraham, and I will bless thee that bless you, and I will what? Curse them who curse you. By the way, anybody hear about the plague of locusts in Egypt? And Israel, yeah. And they're destroying the crops just before Passover. I'm not saying it's anything prophetic, folks, but keep your eyes open because isn't that what happened in the Old Testament? Isn't that what prepared the people to leave Egypt before they became the people of God as far as the covenant was concerned? Because they didn't get that till Mount Sinai, right? But God said, I will send Moses to set you free. Keep your eyes open. All right. Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 23. Concerning what city? Ah. Hamath has been confounded, and Arpad, and you know what, I have a map here, but I don't have time to get into it. All these places you can find, and they're right around that general area, and they actually migrate down toward Jordan. Okay, Hamath is confounded, and Arpad, for they have heard evil tidings. They are faint-hearted. There is sorrow on the sea. Now, when I tell you, I told you this in Scripture, when you watch for the word sea in Scripture, most of the time, especially when you're talking about prophecy and, and prophetic future events, it's not just talking about the Atlantic Ocean or the Mediterranean Sea. It's talking about the Gentile nations, the sea of peoples. And when you look at Revelation, the beast comes out of the... because he's coming out of the Gentile nations, which are all headed by these four kings from Nimrod on. You getting the picture here? There are two kingdoms at work here. One of them wants... One of them is going to win. So, there's sorrow... Around the world is basically saying, and it cannot be quieted. Isn't that interesting? Now, we so we have the setup here. And verse 24, Damascus is waxed feeble, hmm, and turns herself to flee. Have we seen Damascus flee yet? Do you know Damascus is the oldest single inhabited city in history? Where was Paul or Saul headed to when he was called by Jesus? So if you know history, you can tell that the Bible speaks very clearly. And all you have to do is, if you don't understand who Gog and Magog and Tubal and Meshach are, go back to the Bible and you know, if you and you can find the maps, the history's out there, what these nations were at the time the prophet wrote, and you'll know the general area. That's how I know Elam is here. There's no nation named Elam today, but I know it's here because history shows it very clearly. All right, listen to this. <laughs> Turned us herself to flee, and fear has seized, and on anguish and sorrows have taken her. As a woman in travail, has that happened to Damascus yet? But with the way things are shaping up, you think it could be possible soon? Listen to this. Verse 25. How is the city of praise not left? The city of my joy. Now, what does that mean? Not God saying this. 
God is prophesying this through Jeremiah, we agree. Damascus was a hub, like the New York, if you will, of that area, one of the places like that, okay? And what he's basically saying here, and the commentaries also say this that I've looked at, Matthew Henry and so forth, and he's saying, he's lamenting. It's sort of like, I love going to New York. I grew up there. I know the places. I enjoy going to the city. And this is going to be destroyed. The culture, the fun, the museums, the history. For the good things that you can enjoy in Sodom, right? It's going to be destroyed. See how Lot enjoyed Sodom? Remember his wife didn't want to leave it? Why? Because she enjoyed it. It was a city of her joy. This is what he's saying here. Well, Damascus in this day was the city of this man's joy and the joy of many others, and it's going to be destroyed. He's lamenting this message he's getting from God, and he's just writing down what he thinks. Therefore, her young men shall fall in her streets, and all the men of war shall be cut off in what day? That day. Well, does that happen yet? So we've talked about how you can tell when God says in that day, there's only one day that this whole prophecy, all of prophecy is pointing towards, right? Not pointing to the time of the millennium per se, although that day does include the millennium, but it also includes and most specifically talks to most of the time the prior piece to that day, which is the seven year tribulation period, right? Okay, let's continue. And he says here in 27, and I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall consume the palaces of Ben-Hadad. Is the destruction of Western Haran, Iran, this Alam area, is that alluding to this? You see how we're tightening the news here, folks? You already know that we have all of a sudden said that Hezbollah has, has now hold of the chemical weapons that uh, Assad has, right? We're just finding this out now? No, this is all planned. They are going to war, and they're timing the war. This is what they do. The evil people are on both sides of every war. They fund both sides. They trigger them just at the right time. If you look at what triggered the Vietnam War, if you look at what triggered World War I, if you look at what triggered the Arab Spring, one man setting himself on fire, none of these incidences that have been tagged as the beginning of major wars in the world had any, were any big deal. They were timed. And if you look at it, the, the evil funds both sides of the war. It's a machine, folks, and it's all pointing to Satan wanting to win the throne from Jesus Christ, which he has, does not have yet. He's the king of us, our hearts. He's our Lord, he's our king, but he's not the king of this world yet. There is no kingdom here, folks, and we are not to bring it in. That's not our job. It's the covenant of David. That's the job for Jesus Christ to bring in the kingdom when God is ready, right? We don't know the day or the hour, but we do know the second coming is specifically to bring in the physical kingdom of Jesus Christ to this earth, to a fourth temple, which he will build, and on whose throne shall he sit? Anybody? David! All right. Skipping down to verse 31 of Jeremiah 49. So now you see the setup, right? And it ain't pretty. And it seems like it's set up pretty soon to come, doesn't it? So let's go on. Verse 31, Arise, get you up unto the wealthy nation that dwells without care. Hmm, I want you to think about who this nation is. Saith the Lord, that neither has gates nor bars, which dwells, what's the word? Alone. Is he talking about Syria? A wealthy nation. Is Syria wealthy? No. That dwells without a care? I think Syria's got a lot of care, right? How about Iran? How about Iraq? Turkey? You think they have no cares right now? 
I want you to follow what God is saying here in the Old Testament hundreds and hundreds of years before today and think about what he's saying. Dwells without care, says the Lord, which has neither gates nor bars, which dwells alone. No one to help her or this nation. Do you see what he's setting up here? Do you see Israel in this at all, modern-day Israel? Do you see Israel in this at all? How many friends has she got left in the world? Not even us, folks. She's not dwelling with gates nor bars, although she is still kind of in that mode. Is she dwelling without care? Not yet. But there's coming a war which God, her Lord, Yahweh, will make her win. That's the battle of Gog and Magog. Anybody hear that? And when she wins that war, she is going to have a lot of bravado. Or actually, it could be the war before. Let's just see. I want you to think about these things and come to your own conclusion. Verse 32. And their camels shall be a booty, and the multitude of their cattle a spoil. We're talking taking the spoils of a very wealthy nation. Would you agree that in those days, cattle and camels and livestock, the more you had of those, it was like money, wasn't it? It's wealthy. And I will scatter into all the winds them that are in the uttermost corners, and I will bring their calamity from all sides thereof, says the Lord of hosts, or the Lord. And Hazor shall be a dwelling place for dragons and a desolation forever. There shall be no man abiding there, nor any son of man dwelling in it. The Lord, uh, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah, the prophet against Elam. Do you see what he's saying here? Now we're shifting gears. We talked about Damascus. We talked about Israel being involved in this, that they're going to come against Israel. She's all alone. Now we're talking about Iran, Persia. You see the shift in gears here all of a sudden? God is setting something up here through Jeremiah. He wants us to know a timeline without all of the little details. The word of the Lord. So this is like a new thought here. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against Elam. So we finished the one thought about Damascus and her involvement with a city that dwells alone, that's wealthy, that they're going to try to take the booty from, okay? All right. Uh, against Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, now listen to this, I will break the bow of Elam, the chief of their might. What is the bow of Elam right now? What is their major weapon of war right now? This coming nuclear capability. They don't really have much of an army or a navy or anything else, do they? but they have nuclear capability, which some believe they already have it. It's just a question of when they're going to use it. But he says, I'm going to break, he says, their bow, the chief of their might. The chief of their might is probably the nuclear weapons. All right, and it's Persia, isn't it? Isn't Persia a mortal enemy of, of Israel all these years? All right, let's go. Verse 37, For I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies and before them that seek their life, and I will bring evil upon them. My fierce anger, saith the Lord, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. So now you can see for sure that Persia, or Iran, is going to be destroyed, or at least the area that Elam had. And I told you the nuclear capability, the refining and all that stuff is happening in the area that Elam was part of. Make sense? Just keep your eyes open here, folks. So what does he say here? Verse 39, but it shall come to pass in what days? The latter days that I will bring again the captivity of Elam, says the Lord. Okay. Now, I wanted to bring something to you that you will probably find very interesting. And then we're going to go back to Ezekiel and finish this thing about Elam. 
because Ezekiel really gets closer in time to the end as far as what's going to happen in more detail. But I just want you to see, is everybody clear about how we're setting this up? There is a convergence, which is what looks like it's pretty much now, very close to it, right? If we have our eyes open and we see what's going on in the world, the world is at a point where it's never been before. If you watch history and you know history, we are at the brink of destruction like we have never been before. And this area right here is the focal point of everything. Do we agree? Okay. Now, why are there four kingdoms? Four kings. Why are there four points on the compass? There's a lot of things about the number four. The fourth day of creation. Let's see if we can have scripture tell us something. And then we're going to wrap up with this. I want you to think about it this week. Not that I want you to remember all the details here. What I want you to see is part of prophecy. God uses numbers. Okay? Satan takes everything God does, and what does he do with it? He copies it and twists it. God wrote the scripture or the gospel in the heavens. We see that in the Psalms. It's been proven many times. So what does Satan come up with? Instead of astronomy, he comes up with astrology. Now, in numbers in Scripture, we're going to see some of them here right now, just especially number four, we're going to talk about it. What does Satan do with numbers in his bastardization of what God does with the logic of mathematics and the precision using mathematics to do something to show his command and his control and his heart in numbers? What does Satan do with numerology? Watch the occult, because I will tell you that they talk about the keys of Solomon. Ooh, biblical stuff. The occult talks about the spirit of Jesus, and they've infiltrated the church. They have infiltrated the church with astrology. There are people who are Christian who are dabbling in things that they have no clue, that they think they're scriptural because the relationship is so close. You see, Satan doesn't invent anything new, but he takes the truth and adds a little bit of the truth to a big lie. And people who aren't aware, like me in my former days, think this is how God wants you to worship. Be very careful. Anybody ever hear of E.W. Bullinger? He was a very prolific writer in the 1800s. He wrote two books that are very prominent. One of the books was The Witness in the Stars. And I used some of that book to show how God actually mapped salvation. There was 1,500 years or so between Adam and Eve in the Bible. How did God teach? How did people teach the concept of salvation through those times when there was no written scripture? Because God showed them it. If you look at the 12 constellations and as they rotate through a 12-month cycle, it's the complete plan of salvation all through the year. Just like God's holy days. We have seven holy days, and they're a menorah design, perfectly symmetrical. We have the three spring holy days, the three fall holy days, and there's one in the middle. And that is Pentecost. That is when the church started. That is the church of Jesus Christ. And if you look at a menorah, the central lamp is called the Shemesh, or the servant lamp. The menorah shows Jesus Christ ever since for the temple days, ever since Moses was given the instruction. It shows you all of the implements of the temple. It shows you how the temple is laid out as a path through salvation. From judgment to grace. And what was the end of all of that path is when Jesus died on that cross, the veil split and completed the path entry into the Holy of Holies, which people died when they went in there unworthily, even the high priest. You see what I'm saying? The beauty of symmetry of time. And, you know, time is like a menorah. I can't get into all of it now, but the symmetry of the dispensations, and there are dispensations from the age of innocence to sin, to all these things that happen, to the millennium, 
there is a menorah. And smack dab in the middle of that servant lamp is when Jesus Christ came at quote-unquote just the right time. Time is the bedrock of everything God does. He works out everything on physical time. And that's why prophecy is built on top of the foundation of time. And that's a layer of abstraction of which everything else is built upon. Does that make sense? That's why prophecy is important. To see the symmetry of time, we know it can't be an accident. We know it can't be an accident. I'm showing you. So this man wrote some very important things. We have about five minutes left. I'm going to bore you with this, but I want you to listen. The way they wrote in the 1800s and before is a lot deeper, a lot more interesting than the way most people write now. So I want you to listen. I'm going to read part of the preface of his book. He's a very smart man, and he's still quoted today. I'm going to read you part of the preface. I'm going to read you some of the things about this. I'm going to try to get through this in five minutes if I can. 1894. Many writers from the earliest times have called attention to the importance of the great subject of number in Scripture. It has been dealt with, for the most part, in a fragmentary way. One has dealt with some particular numbers, such as seven, because everybody thinks about the number seven. Another has been content with a view of the primary numbers, and even when defining their significance, has given only one or two examples by way of illustration. Another has confined himself to symbolical numbers, such as 10, 40, or the infamous 666. He says, another has taken up such symbolical numbers in their relation to chronology or to prophecy. Another has collected examples, but has dealt little with their meaning. So what he's saying here is people have dabbled with trying to figure out what numbers are in Scripture. They take a few that most people look at, like the number 7 and 666, because these are prominent. Most people want to figure out what these are. Most people know. But he's saying nobody really dealt with them in detail. There seemed, therefore, to be room and indeed a call for a work which would be more complete embrace a larger area, and at the same time be free from the many fancies which all, more or less, indulge in when the mind is occupied too much with one subject. You see what he's saying here. You dwell on something too long, you start making up things. Okay. But, he says, um, anyone who values the importance of a particular principle will be tempted to see it where it does not exist. That's called pretext, right? You see what he just said here? I need to repeat it? Because we're all guilty of it. Anyone who values the importance of a particular principle will be tempted to see it where it does not exist. If I see a boogeyman behind every corner, because I'm always looking for boogeyman, no matter where I look, I'm going to find one. That's basically what he's saying. If I want to imbue my own personal meaning, my own pet meaning for a number, I'll find a way of injecting in the Scripture. By the way, that's a warning to us, too, who read the Bible in any other way. We can take snippets of Scripture and take them totally out of context to suit our own desire. Especially is this the case when chronology is dealt with the greater uncertainty of dates lending itself more readily to the author's fancy. You ever see people trying to set dates? Because they're not really written in Scripture, but they're alluded to. The greatest work on this subject, both chronological and numerical, is not free from these defects. Let me read you chapter 1. Design in the works of God, and then we're probably not going to get to it today, but next week we're going to start off with the number 4. But I want you to get this, because we're going to talk about why the number 4 is so prominent with the four kings, four nations, four of this, four of that. He's quoting some scripture here. This is chapter 1 of this book. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure? You see the measurement going on here, the exact proportions? And weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. This is Isaiah chapter 40, folks. The works of the Lord are great, sought out by all them who have pleasure therein. By the way, that's a good thing for us, isn't it? That last part was Psalms 111. 
there can be neither works nor words without number. We can understand how man can act and speak with design or significance, but we cannot imagine that the great and infinite creator and redeemer could either work or speak without both his words, his works being absolutely perfect in every particular way, right? We have to believe that his words are perfect and his works are perfect and that he effects them. He makes things. So he uses mathematics. He uses precision. He uses timing. He is a, an intentional God. That's what he's saying here. In Psalms 18, verse 30, as for God, his way is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 19, verse 7. They are both perfect in power, perfect in holiness and righteousness, perfect in design, perfect in execution, perfect in their object and end, and may we not say perfect in number? See what he's getting at here? In his preface to this whole thing, listen to this. All his works were and are done, and all his words were spoken and written in the right way. Would we agree with that? We have to agree with that, otherwise we don't know God. At the right time, in the right order, and in the right number. Psalms 147, verse 4, he tells the number of stars. Isaiah 40, verse 26, he brings out their host by number. Job 28, 25, he weighs the waters by measure. This is the God we serve. This is the precision of the God we serve. We may therefore say with David, David said this, I meditate on all thy works, I muse on all the works of thy hands. Psalm 143 and verse 5. In all the works of God, we find not only what we call law and a lawmaker, but we observe a law enforcer. Would you agree that everything works? Can we even try to begin to skip over or ignore the laws of physics? We speak of laws, but they are nothing in and of themselves. They have no being. They possess no power. They cannot make themselves nor carry themselves out. What we mean when we speak of a law in nature is simply this. God in action. God not merely giving or making laws, but carrying them out and enforcing them. As he is perfect, so his works and his words also must be perfect. We'll stop there today. But do you see the writing of this man, how much he knew about God, how much he was convinced that God is perfection? And in perfection and beauty is symmetry, is a plan, is a design. You can look at it like, I'll take a Volkswagen for an example. Oh, let's take a, an Audi because Rachelle loves Audis. No, uh, what do you like? Yeah, that's too, uh, okay, so we'll use a Volkswagen then. Okay. You can take a car, let's say it's a Volkswagen or an older American car, and then you can take a modern-day Japanese vehicle and so forth. If I put them side by side, they both basically do the same thing. But can you tell the heart of the design team when you look at the engineering? Yes? I know that some of these cars are great engines, like Dodge. Their drivetrains are great. But the automatic transmissions used to be lousy. But I know I could take a Japanese car, and the whole car will probably work well together for many years. You see what I'm saying? Would you not agree then that you can take something I design or something somebody else designs and maybe by looking at how each of these things are designed, you can tell me a little bit more about who I am and how I approach something. Yes? Make sense? That's what we need to understand. This is what he's saying here. When we talk about these things of God and the way we talk about them here in this class, it is mainly like my tagline says, we can identify God's heart, his mind, his character, and his point of view by seeing how he does things. And that's what I want us to keep remembering as we study. 
It is not just to try to figure out when the Antichrist is coming, when Jesus Christ is coming. That's all part and parcel of what we're here for. We want to go home. But it's also not just knowing salvation. It's knowing who he is. And we are privileged because no one else is allowed to know God but us. Let me say that again. Our job as a church is not to attract people to us. It sounds bad, but think of it. We are to give God's word as flawlessly and as black and white as possible because in the books of Acts, what does it say? Not Pentecost, right? There were 3,000. And what most of those people thought that those men were drunk. I wouldn't say those men were attractive. How about Jesus when it says in Isaiah, he wasn't pretty, he wasn't handsome, he had nothing about him that we would desire. That's why Israel wanted Saul for the king because he was statuesque. He was like one of these guys. The church, what did it say? And 3,000 souls were saved that day. And in Acts chapter 4, it says that they started going out and the Jews told them, don't speak in this name anymore. Obviously, they weren't attractive to the Pharisees either. But what did they say? We must do what we're here to do, regardless of what you think. And what was the next thing that happened? And it says in Acts chapter 4, right after that, and the Holy Spirit added to them daily. It is not our job to attract because we will never feed the flock. What we will keep doing as a church, and I'm just talking about this, I'm talking about any church. What we will do is we will attract people by keeping the gospel dumbed down, by not talking about prophecy, by not talking about scripture, by not talking about things like evil and sin. We don't hear enough about hell because we're afraid that if they don't like us, they won't like our Jesus. That's too bad. We are, that's right. This book talks about judgment. This book talks about it. We need to speak about it. Right. And that's why I'm convicted, folks. So go out there and your job's not to save the world. Your job is to be ready to give the answer because the Holy Spirit will lead people to you and me only if we're ready. That's when we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servants. Faith without works is dead. Absolutely. But it's not our job to do works. It's not our job to entice people to come to Christ.